Hi, I'm John Allen, pastor here at Risen Church. We pray this sermon helps you fall deeper in love with Jesus, his people, and his purpose in the earth. And so if you're in Virginia Beach or the Hampton Roads area, we would love to have you join with us in person at one of our services this coming Sunday. Uh, at Risen, we don't just have a seat for you, we have a space for you. And so I pray this teaching blesses you and grows you in your love for Jesus Christ. I don't want to like lose sight of the power of this. This is his longest exposition in one sitting. He talks about blessing. He talks about purpose. He talks about anxiety. He talks about being judgmental, marriage, divorce. He talks about prayer. He talks about forgiveness. He talks about money and he talks about anger and he talks about a bunch of other things. It's a powerful, powerful sermon. It's the greatest sermon ever preached, and it's straight from the mouth of God himself in the flesh. This isn't just some ancient guru. It's God Almighty in the flesh. And so it's important to take that in. It's important to take in who this is in order to understand what he's saying. Like we need to realize who Jesus is if you're really going to apply what he preached. You see, this sermon is often very misunderstood. The Sermon on the Mount gets very confused. And I think the biggest reason for the confusion surrounding it is because people miss who it is that's preaching it. And so before we uh, get into what's being said, I, I want to allow us to take in a moment who it is that's speaking these words to us. Because this sermon isn't just a bunch of instructions. Like it's a way more deep and more powerful sermon than that. It's not just instruction. It's not just teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to a person, the person and presence of Jesus himself, the king and his kingdom. And so it's all very highly practical but all of his practicality flows directly out of the practice of his presence. And so as we're going to see, this sermon is a portrait of the gospel of grace. If you miss that, you're going to miss the point. So this morning, we're going to start with what has historically been called the Beatitudes, which is simply just an English transliteration of a Latin term that means blessing. Okay? And so in the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, we're given eight different Beatitudes, comes from the Latin beatus. Again, that just means blessing. So eight different descriptions of what it looks like to be blessed. That's what we see. And so when we hear the word blessed, right, when you hear that word, I think in society it often tends to bring up or conjure up situations or things that we've been given, right? Like when you hear blessed, like, you think of like Instagram, like hashtag, hashtag blessed, you know, like, like look at my house, hashtag blessed, sold, like, you know, that's what you get, you get like, or, or I'm on vacation, this is where I get to be is hashtag I'm blessed, because I'm in the Caribbean, right, or like coffee shop gives me an extra caramel frappuccino because they had another one someone ordered, and they're just like, hey, do you want this for free, and it's like, hey, I'm blessed, extra frappuccino, right, but when we look at the way Jesus uses the term blessed, 
And, and, and that seems kind of superficial, but in so many other ways, that is often how we think of blessing, right? When we talk about even counting our blessings, we often think of stuff or situations when we think of what it means to be blessed. When we look at the way Jesus uses the term, it's not just about circumstances or situations or stuff that makes life uh, set apart for us as good. Like what separates the blessed from everyone else isn't about their, personal, their personality traits or, or the things that they're given. What defines those who are blessed, according to Jesus, isn't what they're blessed with, but who they're blessed with. It's not about what you get in this life or even how easy or comfortable or successful things turn out for you in this life that characterizes the blessed life, but who you get in this life and in the next. So as we'll see, that often comes in the midst of difficult situations because you learn to look to the one who truly satisfies rather than the counterfeits that this world tries to offer. And so, as I said, there's eight different Beatitudes here, but this morning we're going to just hone in on the first four, because the last four actually flow out of the first four, and we'll get to those later. But the first four describes our vertical relationship with God, and then the sort of, they build upon one another, and they flow out of each other, and then the last four speak to our horizontal relationships with each other. And they also build upon each other. And so it's, it's, it's not unlike the Ten Commandments and the way the Ten Commandments are structured. Everything begins with and flows out of our relationship with God, our standing with God. And again, if you don't read this sermon in light of who it is that's preaching it, meaning Jesus, you're going to miss the point entirely. So this entire sermon, especially these Beatitudes, they've got to be understood in light of the gospel of grace. The all-satisfying Savior is the one who's preaching this, okay? Otherwise, you're going to simply hear a list of things you need to do to attain blessing. That's the temptation every human heart has when hearing this sermon. When reading these chapters, that's the temptation. The human ego is constantly striving to do something so that we can then get the credit for it. But if you miss the gospel, again, you're going to make this all about your own self-righteousness, and you'll walk away either puffed up in insecure pride or crushed in hopeless shame. Either way, if that's how you hear this, then you're going to be exhausted. This is going to be exhausting, not life-giving. But that's not what this is about. Jesus is giving us an invitation into the blessed life by describing what it looks like for those who receive it. Or really describing what it looks like for those who receive him. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get, all right? So you're going to have to stay engaged. I get it. It's a little warm in here. So I might, maybe I'll do like a backflip or something just to grab your attention, but um, the that thing's, I think it's churning, it's trying. The sun was shining hot this morning through the window. But um, So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. To be blessed isn't about what you get in this life. It's about who you get both in this life and in the life to come, okay? So to be blessed isn't about what you get in this life. It's about who you get both in this life and in the life to come, namely Jesus. That's why I first and foremost want to hone in on the preeminent beauty 
and the majesty of who this man is that's preaching this sermon. Theologian Sam Storms, once was, he was once asked why he loves Jesus so much. Good question, right? And so why do you love Jesus so much? And I expected him to answer with something that a lot of people say when they are asked, why do you love Jesus so much, right? And the answer is, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, because of what he's done for me, right? That may have been the first thing on your mind too. I, I think of that as well, right? And that's definitely a part of it, but he spoke to the real root of it all. And I love this. He says, because he's preeminently lovable. I love that so much. Why do I love Jesus so much? Because he's preeminently lovable. Risen Church, I, I, I want you to get this in you. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he, he, he once put it like this. He said, the foundation of our love for Christ is not so much, first and foremost, what he's done for us, but the intrinsic glory, the majesty, the splendor of who he is in himself. So when you realize what this preeminently lovable and all-glorious king, who, when you realize who he is, when you realize how majestic and beautiful he is, you're going to want to come to him. And then you realize you're not worthy to come to him because of sin, which is where the gospel comes in. Because when you realize what he has done for you so that you can be with him, it changes everything. But that's when you start to come to grips with the meaning of blessing and being blessed. Like I want you to see how all of the preeminent lovability of Jesus Christ is on display, not only in these Beatitudes, but throughout this Sermon on the Mount, okay? And so turn with me again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So now I've told you before that mountains often represent barriers between God and humanity in the scriptures. And so going up on a mountain, away from the regular rhythms of life, often into the wilderness, right, it can be a perspective-altering experience. Like it's an opportunity to, to see things from a different angle. I went to college at Appalachian State University in, in Boone, North Carolina, and I was constantly drawn up into the mountains. I found myself going up there oftentimes with friends, but a lot of times then I would just go up by myself. I would just walk up, take my Bible into the fog, into the clouds, just to pray and talk with the Lord, just to sit with him, just to be with him, to walk around with him uh, in, in the heights, so to speak, right? Just to let him shape or reshape my mind and my heart to transform and align me with himself. Some of the formative moments of my life were in those experiences. There's a lot of examples of people that are climbing mountains to meet with God in the scriptures. We see this a lot. One of the most famous examples would be Moses. God called him to climb up Mount Sinai by himself. Remember, this, this is how he received the Ten Commandments. But nobody else could come. He calls Moses, but he says everybody else needs to wait down below. So he climbs up, he meets with God. God gives him the Ten Commandments, and then he comes back down the mountain, and there on the side of the mountain, he teaches God's people what God has said. And so here in Matthew, we get a kind of throwback to that moment. 
Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the greater Moses. There's a picture here. There's an image because Jesus doesn't just go up, though, on the mountain uh, himself. This is important. He invites the disciples. He invites the people to come with him into the presence of God. But he doesn't go all the way up the mountain. I don't think that that's what we see here. I may be wrong. I've never been there. I'm not sure people really know exactly where it is. But from what I'm understanding here, it seems that God has come down to his people. He has met us where we are. He doesn't stand at a lofty distance. He sits down, it says, and invites all who would come. And he invites them to come close come close to him, to where he is. It's as if he's saying the mountain itself is no longer a barrier. Because I have come to you, you can simply come directly to me. He doesn't say, wait here. He says, come here. This is the God who says, let the children come to me. This is different. But again, so many people treat the Sermon on the Mount the same way that they treat the Law of Moses. They simply read it as an instruction manual on how to attain blessing. Like if you abide by these rules, then you'll be blessed. If you're in this situation or have this personality, then you'll be blessed. But that's all just an attempt to replace the Law of Moses with the Sermon on the Mount. It's still just legalism. It's just religiosity. And again, if you try to do it like that, then you're going to be overwhelmed and exhausted because you're never going to measure up. And you'll find yourself just living critical and judgmental of both yourself and others and feeling a distance between you and the God who's saying, I have come to you, I have sat down, and I've invited you into my presence. Come to me. C.S. Lewis once said of the Sermon on the Mount, because doesn't, that doesn't water down what's being said, though. Like, this thing comes at you, all right? Again, C.S. Lewis said, the Sermon on the Mount is a sledgehammer that has destroyed the entire foundation of my life. <laughs> kind of had a way with words. And in so many ways, that's the point, right? But it's not just about destruction of our foundations, The point is to give you a new foundation, a real foundation, and that foundation is in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus isn't bestowing eight different blessings for eight different situations or or kinds of people. He's preaching the gospel. In fact, he's going to walk through the necessary components for justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification right here. And he's going to show us the abundant life that flows in the midst of it all. And if those words are really heavy and lofty and you're not sure what they mean, stay tuned, (laughs) okay? Again, the reason we tend to miss the point of this sermon is because we tend to miss the point of grace. Seriously, we are so self-centered and performance-oriented and ego-driven that we have a hard time comprehending our eternal need for grace. You see, grace flips the self-important, self-centered, controlling value system of this world completely upside down. One of the best ways I've heard grace described is by saying the verdict comes before the performance. 
I'm going to say that one again. Because what? The verdict comes before the performance. That doesn't compute to a heart and mind that's set on itself. The grace flips the script on pride and shame completely. It's as if the value system Jesus institutes here is not of this world entirely. But if you miss that, if you miss the gospel, then you're only going to replace the law of Moses with the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to live bound by the torment of your own pride in achievement, which only then leads to the shame of your eventual failure. And you'll miss Jesus entirely in the process. Now, you might have, of course, a very short-lived behavior modification life. But your heart's going to fester with bitterness toward God and others. Guys, that's not the abundant life Jesus has for you, and that's not the gospel. It's just self-exalting judgment fest of yourself and everybody else, and it's exhausting. The The good news is, though, that's exactly what Jesus came to set us free from. It's a process. If you think you graduated from that process, congratulations, you're in heaven. Right? Look at verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them. I want you to pay attention to the way that Matthew words this. He's intentionally reminding us again of who Jesus is. Like this idea of pointing us to the God of creation is being magnified here. The idea of him opening his mouth is meant to build anticipation because the one who spoke creation into existence, the one whose words were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the word of God made flesh has come to them and he's opening his mouth to speak and teach and preach. The one whose very words are the bread of life is about to provide a communion feast for us. In other words, I hope you're hungry. In other words, pay attention. Are you hungry? Me too. Our goal here is to follow Jesus and help others find and follow Jesus. That's what this is. This is what we mean when we talk about sharing life in Christ with each other and our city. And honestly, if you're not actively trying to follow Jesus and actively looking around you to help others do the same, you've likely missed the entire purpose of Christianity to begin with. So I want to look to the source and I want to see what the source has to say. Okay, here we go. So he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So right out of the gate, Jesus speaks blessing. That's, that's not a, that is intentional, right? That's his intro, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait, what? Wait, hold on. Blessed? Are the poor in in spirit? You sure? Don't you mean blessed are the self-reliant? Right? Like the independent. They're the ones that are the blessed ones in our culture, right? The people who have seen it all, have it all together, know what they're doing, don't have any issues. They're the blessed ones in our culture, right? 
You see, the ones who seem to have it all figured out, the, the ones that are wise in their own eyes, the, the, the ones like the Roman emperors or the, or the religious leaders and Pharisees, they're the ones that are the blessed ones, right? Not us. We're, we're just trying to figure life out. You see, both the secular leaders of their day as well as the religious leaders were extremely high-minded about the kingdoms that they had established and were establishing. Humility was not a virtue. Hear this. Humility was not a virtue in Greco-Roman society. In fact, the Latin term humilitas was only taken to mean something attached to shame and failure in their day. It was far from a virtue. Humility was a debasing term to a society that prized the love of honor and reputation above all else. Aristotle actually taught that honor and reputation was the highest achievement you could ever strive for. Like even the religious leaders of the day, they had their rules and they were proud of their achievements when it came to obeying the law. But Jesus comes and he just completely flips the script on both the secular and religious mindsets of his day. And it also applies directly to our day, right? Jesus actually sparked a revolution of humility that even secular historians mark and trace directly back to Jesus. Humility is now a virtue in our world because of Jesus Christ. But I want you to listen to me. If you've been influenced by this world, if you've been influenced at all by this world, which we all have, then this is going to be a difficult teaching to grasp still. Because one of the most fundamental doctrines of our fallen world is self-sufficiency. It's ego and it's pride. It's the blatantly outspoken tenet of this world. But Jesus says that if you're about the kingdom of heaven, if you're about his kingdom, then the first thing you recognize is your insufficiency. You see, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's the recognition of your spiritual neediness, that you're spiritually bankrupt and broke. You don't have it all together, and you're, you're ready to quit pretending and then receive the one who does have it all together, the one who has come. The king and the kingdom has come to you, but only those who recognize their deep need for him will receive him. So the question is, do you see your need continually? Like I said, this isn't like the entryway into Christianity. This is the whole thing. Do you see your need for Jesus? And will you receive the one who has come to you? So many people think Christianity is a set of religious principles designed to help you get your life in order. So you can be seen as great or smart or successful. And yes, guys, there is a discipline that comes with being a disciple of Jesus. And that does then often bring a measure of success in this world. But you never, ever graduate from that utter and desperate dependence on him. In fact, the more you know him, the more mature you are in him, the more you'll realize just how much you have to rely on his Holy Spirit. And the more you're thankful then for him and the more you fall in love with him and the more you see just how lovable, preeminently lovable he is. When I say lovable, guys, hear me. Like, I don't mean like lovable in the way that like a puppy is lovable, okay? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, the truth is, is that we like cute things because they feel safe and they remind us of how strong we are. That's often the case. 
Seriously, like we feel like we need to care for them because we're strong and they're vulnerable. But God doesn't need you. He doesn't. His lovability isn't because he's cute and vulnerable. You need to realize you're the vulnerable one. Not always cute. Vulnerable. Jesus is the Savior. And, and right up front, he's giving us the fundamental prerequisite for receiving this gospel of grace and even understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't get your need to be poor in spirit, nothing else in the next three chapters is going to make sense. You'll miss the whole point. Like if you're not poor in spirit, if you think you've got this thing locked down and you're good enough, yours is the fallen kingdoms of Herod and the Pharisees, but not the kingdom of heaven. Because the king of heaven came to the sick, not the healthy. He came to those who recognized their need, not the self-sufficient. This is the gospel, that God became a man and lived the life we could not live and died the death we deserved to die and conquered death in the grave, that which we deserved. He took on himself and conquered it through the resurrection from the dead, and he paved the way to eternal life. He bridged the gap. He split the veil. The distance is no longer there for us in Christ. Those who have placed their faith and their hope in what he did for us at the cross and through the resurrection, we have our hope that's alive in Jesus now. He paved the way to an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our hope and our faith in what he's done for us now. This is the relationship that we have in Christ. This is his spirit that fills us and changes us and draws us unto himself and says, I realize you don't have what it takes, do you? And even more, do you realize I do have what it takes and my grace is sufficient for you? This is the gospel. This is what it looks like to receive his blessing and live blessed. It begins with being poor in spirit. It's a picture of the heartfelt confession. Say confession. It's the heartfelt confession of what's true. I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes, but my faith and my hope is in the one who does. And he is enough and he's enough for me. He's even the very doorway himself into the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. <laughs> Again, what? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, I want you to think about hearing this for the first time. This is familiar to a lot of us, and so we hear it and it just goes right over our heads. But think about how that would have come across. If you're hearing this, for, blessed, blessed are those who mourn. Like when you're mourning, it feels like the complete opposite of blessing. Like we mourn when we experience deep loss and grief. We mourn when we're confronted by pain and suffering and tragedy. We mourn when we're faced with circumstances that are contrary to what we expected or even hoped for. That's when we mourn. But Jesus tells us that those who mourn are blessed. Why? Because they shall be comforted. Again, notice he's not pointing to a circumstance. He's pointing to a relationship. He's not just pointing to a circumstance. He's pointing to how every circumstance, for those who are blessed, draws them deeper into this relationship. That circumstance has let you down. That relationship, that expectation or hope in this world 
has left you devastated. But for those who mourn, there is hope. And what is our hope? The comfort of Jesus Christ. This is important. You get this. We live in a society that does not do well with mourning and grief. We don't know how to do it anymore. I don't know if we ever really did. But we, we struggle with this. Like when we ask how, if you go up to somebody and you're like, hey, how's your day going? How are, how are things for you? You know, if they say anything other than I'm good, how are you? We're like, uh. Right? And, and, and it's kind of, it makes sense. Like it's confusing and overwhelming when people articulate anything other than I'm good. Like the way our society deals with death, for example, is by just saying, eh, it's just a natural part of life. You ever heard that? That death is a natural part of life. What? That didn't even make sense. Guys, hear this. There is nothing natural about death. You were not designed for death. That's why it's so difficult to deal with. There's nothing natural about death. You weren't created to die. That's why we don't know how to deal with it because we, we, we then, this is why we create coping mechanisms of either completely disengaging in denial or, or medicating and inebriating in order to numb and detach ourselves from the inevitability of our own mortality. That's what sneaks up on people and they flip out. This fallen world, though, is filled with sin and death, Right? And no, I'm not trying to get you to like go into like depressed mode here. I want you to get out of that detached, illusioned mindset and lean into what's true. Things are not as they should be. And mourning then, therefore, mourning, the sinful state of this world, is actually a healthy characteristic of those who are actually truly grounded in reality. Seriously, things aren't as they should be. Sin is horrible. It deserves death. And when we sin, it should grieve our hearts like it grieves the heart of God. Like mourning sin and sinful situations is actually a very healthy part of confessing what is true and tuning into the heart of God. Your sin should grieve you. And other people's sin should grieve you if it doesn't you won't care about it. Or you'll just deny that it's a problem and sort of detach. This is all a part of confessing what's true about ourselves and our world. It's about coming to grips with reality. And Jesus is showing us the necessary characteristics of a people who receive grace. In other words, if you're not poor in spirit, you'll never actually mourn sin. You'll just live angry and hypercritical of yourself and everyone around you again, but you'll never get to that place of actual heartfelt mourning. The truth is, when Jesus encounters sin and death, it moves him to grief. Jesus mourns. He didn't sin, but he definitely mourned sin. Jesus wept over Jerusalem who had rejected its Savior. 
Jesus wept in the face of Lazarus' death, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the grave. He still mourned the effects of sin and death in the lives of those that he loved. Guys, the Christian life isn't just this unhinged elation. (laughs) It's also not unhinged sorrow. But even in the morning, I want you to get, there is joy. There's true joy. Even in the grief, there is rejoicing. This is what sets the true Christian apart from the rest of this world. You see, we're also, again, we're not called to just walk around sad all the time. Like, the reality is that even in the face of death itself, Christians are the ones who are called, 1 Thessalonians says, to mourn differently. We are not those who mourn without hope. Our mourning, our grief is a hopeful mourning. There is even rejoicing in the midst of it because this is not all there is. Again, hear this. To mourn in a healthy way means to come to grips with the reality of what is lost or what has gone wrong. To accept it and to accept that there's nothing you can do about it. But what does that, the person who is not poor in spirit, who thinks that they have it all together or they can control the things or do, what what does that person do when they're faced with loss or when things don't go the way they'd hoped or there's nothing they can do about it? What do they do? What do we do? Get angry. Right? I know because this is my first reaction tends to be anger in situations like this. Especially when I realize there's nothing I can do about it. It's easy to lean into anger when we're confronted by the sin of other people or even your own sin. And then it's easy to get angry at God for allowing that death or tragedy or injustice to happen in the first place. That spiral into resentment is simply the result of refusing to recognize our own spiritual neediness in the first place. And the only way back then is to confess and accept that you can't control the people and circumstances around you. And you're not designed to carry it all. It's, the re- it's that recognition that you're not enough, but he is. And he's got this. And he's got you. And his grace is sufficient. And when we look to Jesus as those poor in spirit, spiritually needy, we can also look to Jesus as our hope. Because we quit looking to ourselves as our hope. Because if you look to yourself as your own hope, you're going to find yourself hopeless. That's when you'll finally be able to accept and to actually, in a healthy way, mourn. No more excuses, just acceptance. That's when we look to Jesus for our comfort right in the midst of it all. And that is healthy mourning. Because he's our hope. And guys, listen to me. There's no greater joy. There's no greater joy. There's no greater blessing than to find yourself in that valley. I mean that deep valley of grief, like that valley of the shadow of death kind of grief. I'm talking like worst case scenario. And then you look up and you experience the delight of the God of creation just smiling and shining on you. Guys, that's blessing. That's joy. 
And notice, he doesn't say that you're going to be comforted immediately. <laughs> like he doesn't say it's right out of the gate. He says, you will be comforted. See, this is part of the power of the already and not yet nature of the kingdom of heaven. It's already here, but not yet fully. One day when Jesus returns, Revelation 21, 4 tells us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. But until then, there's also some really good news. We're not just sitting here in like a, a slug it out fest and waiting. We are in the waiting room, but we wait vigilantly with deep expectation and a down payment of what's to come. That's how scripture puts it. And you know what that down payment is? His very presence, the Holy Spirit. We have direct access in this life now to his spirit. Jesus referred to the spirit, the Holy Spirit. You know what he called him? The comforter. Even in the deepest and darkest and most disillusioned or desperate scenario, all that seems like it could be only darkness is suddenly transformed into goodness, even blessing, because he's close and that's all that matters. He's not just enough, he's more than enough, even right now. And that's when that angry fist and that resentment and all that confusion gets turned into an open hand of surrender and embrace. And that's when we step down from the throne of our own lives and trust him to be the savior and the king and to him to be more than enough. And that's when we let him take his rightful place in our lives. Because our rightful place is not on the throne, that's his place. That's where he belongs. Which leads to verse 5. Understanding how to take your rightful place and to let him have his rightful place in your life. This is what it means to be meek. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now most people hear the word meek and they just assume it means weak. But that's not actually what it means. To be meek means that you're no longer grasping for a role that doesn't belong to you. And you're trusting in a strength that goes beyond you. You stop trying to play God. It doesn't mean you're not confident or even strong. It just means that your confidence isn't in your own strength or your own ability. It's a picture of someone who's true, who, who has true humility. Not false humility, which is often just insecurity masked by passivity. That's a whole other sermon. That'll preach. But we're, true humility is extremely confident because it hopes and it trusts in one who is greater. It's not a trust in self. It's a trust in him. It's like the Chronicles of Narnia. It's one of my favorite images in the Chronicles of Narnia, the little kid's book where Lucy Pevensey, little girl, she's standing up against, she's confronted by an army of enemies and they're coming after her and she confidently pulls out this little dagger and she's just looking at him, kind of smiling. And behind her, Aslan roars. Remember that? I, oh, this is like my life, guys. <laughs> like this is like, I got, I'm like little, I'm like, yeah, I need a dagger, you know. This is what I feel like I'm up against constantly. And then God is behind you just, just like full Aslan mode. And the enemies scatter. 
Like the meek know who their father is. They're poor in spirit and they mourn the effects of sin. But because they've come to grips with their need for grace and they've received their true comfort in Christ alone, they now know where their true strength comes from. They have no need for pretensions or perfection. And when they fall, they're able to get right back up. Why? And when I say right back up, I don't mean ignoring the sorrow. I don't mean acting like it never happened. But I also mean not identifying with it. Because that's what the grace of God allows us to do, is to not be bound and labeled by condemnation. Men of conviction, they stand up. This is the power of the gospel of grace. Our Savior is our identity. And so meekness flows out of those who have recognized their own spiritual neediness and they mourn sin in themselves and in the world and therefore they look to God as their comfort rather than their own strength. The meek are contrasted in Scripture with those who are constantly quarreling to assert their own kingdoms or their own selfish ambitions. The meek are those who have recognized their own spiritual neediness. They mourn sin in themselves and in the world, and they found comfort in Christ alone rather than their own status or their own strength to protect them and control the world around them. Jesus tells us that they are actually, the meek are actually the ones who shall inherit the earth. Not the ones who feel like they're hard-charging and have it all together. It's the ones Jesus says are those who are meek. Not because the meek are so awesome, but because they trust in the one who is. This was, guys, I can't even explain to you how radically revolutionary this was to that first century audience. Radically revolutionary. I mean, Luke 14 in Luke 14, Jesus was invited to a dinner at a Pharisee's house, and he noticed how all of the Pharisees, they come in and they, cho they choose the places of honor to sit in. And so he begins to tell them this parable. Look at Luke 14, verse 8. It says this, when Jesus is speaking to all these Pharisees that have just been like basically playing musical chairs for the most like high position in the room, okay? Meanwhile, God himself is sitting in there, and they're not even like paying him any attention. Again, that'll preach, but verse eight, he says this, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you were invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus Christ himself demonstrated this with his own life. Philippians 2 verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, speaking to the church at Philippi and the church in Virginia Beach, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. This is all part of trusting in the Lord and not in your own strength. It's about trusting him and his ways and his process, not leaning on your own understanding or attempting to be wise in your own eyes. This is what Rich preached last week in Proverbs 3. And then finally, verse 6. Verse 6 says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, I want you to see how this all builds on itself. Like when you recognize your spiritual need, when you mourn, then you mourn the sinful state of the world and the sinful state of the hearts around you and your own heart even. And then you look for comfort in Christ alone because everything else fails. And you come to grips with that. And then you trust in the Lord rather than yourself in light of it all. And that then cultivates a deep desire for righteousness, which means alignment with God. Because when you're poor in spirit and you mourn and, and then you become meek, you recognize how out of alignment you and everything else in this world is and you hunger and thirst like a man dying in the wilderness for that alignment. You go, God, I see what I don't have and I want it, I need it. And you know what he promises? In that desperation to be made right with God, he answers it. The blessed heart yearns for that righteousness and he promises you'll be satisfied. Most theologians talk about righteousness here in three ways. I'm going to give this these three different ways that righteousness is kind of spoken about. And I think all three apply here, okay? First is judicial or, or legal righteousness. This is the one that most people tend to talk about in church, especially uh, when we're talking about bringing the lost into eternal life, right? They, they need to be made right legally before God. This is when we're talking about terms like justification. They need to be justified in Christ. There's a spiritual need, a mourning over sin, and this meek surrender to Jesus. And I could cultivate this desire to be justified, cleansed from sin, set free from the guilt of sin that demands condemnation and death, right? That's what we mostly think about. This is what Jesus accomplished for us through the cross and resurrection, this is what we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, justification. And Jesus is telling us here that if, if you hunger and thirst for this, it's because you've been blessed and you'll be satisfied. This is the power of salvation. Why? Because his grace is sufficient and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is salvation. But there's another aspect to righteousness. And that, the Sermon on the Mount is actually going to get into this. And that is what's called moral righteousness, okay? And this is the result of loving God and maturing in your lifelong spiritual walk with him. This is what sanctification is about. This is about continually growing into and, and, and being transformed into the likeness of who Christ is. This is, again, the verdict of justification is in. Got it? 
If you're in Christ, the verdict is in. And then the evidence of sanctification then follows. But it's a lifelong process of ups and downs. I've heard the sanctification process described like this, saying it's described as becoming progressively who God already says you are positionally. Anybody feel that? Becoming progressively who God already says you are positionally. Woo! That's good. Are you a sinner? Yes. But not positionally. Positionally, you're a saint. Because the verdict is in. You're a saint. Sin still plagues you in this world. And the sanctification process brings you into what the verdict declares over you progressively. This is the life we walk in Christ. But those who are blessed with the hunger and thirst for sanctification, guess what? You'll be satisfied. Are you hungry? Are you hungry or are you just happy with your get-out-of-jail-free card? Jesus calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then there's a third aspect of righteousness that we're going to see also in the Sermon on the Mount. Some people tend to hone in on one of these three, by the way. Jesus says, they all matter a lot. And you know what the third one is? It's called social righteousness. Social righteousness. This is part of why Jesus teaches us to pray, and he will teach us as we get into this, how to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll talk more about these things throughout this series, but it's ultimately all the overflow of beholding and desiring the preeminently lovable Savior and King, Jesus Christ, because you can't force heaven on anybody. Heaven on earth is cultivated when people behold the preeminent lovability of God and surrender their lives to him, and he changes us from the inside out. That's how heaven comes to earth. That's what the church is building. That's how the kingdom of God expands. It's not by the sword. It's not through rules or laws. It's through beholding Jesus and receiving his spirit by the blood of the lamb. This is the blessing. This is the blessing we have in Christ. This is grace. The verdict is in. We have his approval, his attention. We have his affection. We have his delight. This is who we are and who we have in Christ. The question now is, how then shall we live? That's what the Sermon on the Mount, as you'll see, is all about. 